0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> make a statement, or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
1: Some things are so unexpected that no one is prepared for them. Leo Rosten.
2: Because of that reflection that comes off the glacier, we all have to wear special sunglasses, um, the care for the dog is the most important thing, and if the dog has any pink on it every morning, we're putting uh, sunscreen on the dog. We're putting mascara under their eyes to act as eye black. Um, and up, up on the glacier, they're all male dogs, just because if female went heat, it caused so many problems for the tour who couldn't handle it. So every morning, cup of coffee, you're putting sunscreen on every dog's balls, every one of them. So the f- first time when I get up there, I was like, what? I retired from the military, my job is putting sunscreen on dog balls, but it's extremely important because that is a very sensitive area for the dogs, and that reflection coming off the sun and the glacier, um, yeah, if we don't do that, the dog's not gonna be able to stay up there for very long.
1: I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. Well, constant listeners, we are all in for a big treat this week as one of my favorite guests makes a return visit to the studio for the fourth time to spend some time and spin some yarns. Welcome back to the John Freak and Muir Pod, Ben Vaughn. How's it going, Ben?
2: good doc uh great to meet you or great to see you again it's been it's been a little while we we're doing a little dance trying to get to this podcast done and finally got a little time off so thought this would be a great opportunity
1: yeah that's right I mean we are just to give people a perspective on on how long we've been trying to get this together I had I had you scheduled for season four episode 10 and right now we are recording season 5 episode 23. oh so wow it, well you've been, been busy little- then it's been a little bit of time, but I, I knew we would eventually connect. Uh you've always come through in the in the in the end for us. So uh it's really good to to see you again. And I, I'm really looking forward to this episode. Uh, me too. Is is this your fourth time? I was trying to think about the times that we talked. We we talked about your triple crown. That was the first time. Then we we met in person, I believe, in uh, Southern California to talk about the Hey Duke. And then we had you on again with uh scrapbook. Well, that's to right. Talk about the the Long Trail in Vermont.
2: Yep. So this Wait, there a,
1: was. there another one, or was that, is that it?
2: No, that's it. That covers all of it.
1: Okay. So you you officially tied Jeff Garmeyer now as the most frequent guest on the podcast. Each week. well,
2: I mean, he's a legend. So uh, I feel uh, you
1: know, I feel uh, humbled by that. It's good company to be in there, Ginger. Yes, Balls. It is. Yeah, and I've speaking... yet to meet. I've yet to meet him though. Okay, well, maybe we can. um,
2: When I did Superior Hiking Trail, he was trying to do the FKT on that. So I finished and I went down to a crossing, a trail crossing where I thought he was going to be at. And then he had gotten injured or something and didn't make it that far. So I just missed meeting him in person.
1: Got it, got it. You know, he he recently had a new documentary released about him by uh, Jason Fitzpatrick. He was the guy behind... A uh, mile, mile and a half. Yeah. A documentary about the, the John Muir Trail. He did a documentary with Jeff Garmeyer on his FKT of the Colorado Trail. So that's that is just out. I know that he is kind of doing a barnstorming tour around the country, uh, with having it released out into different parts of the of the country.
2: Well, if he comes up to Alaska, maybe I'll get a chance to meet him in person.
1: Okay. I'll I'll let him know. All right. Sounds that's good. It. And I I referred to you as Ginger Balls a little bit earlier, and that is your trail name, obviously. And, Correct. Actually, you
2: called me Ben on the introduction, but now we can go back to our trail names.
1: That's right. Back to the trail names, Ginger Balls. And right now, I'm looking at your uh, your screen here. If you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, and you've got uh, uh, as as your name here, I'm going to change that to Ginger Balls. Is that with a Z? Yes, with a Z. Of course, of course. We all we all know that Ginger Balls. There you go. All right hey uh ginger balls just remind us again how, how did you come up with uh how'd you get stuck with the moniker of gingerballs?
2: oh you know it was way back first trail hike back in 2018 on the at um young new hiker hiking with uh you know a modified trail family that was starting to fill itself out and i was the old guy and um i don't know i was always kind of the ballsy one to say hey i'm gonna go a little extra or I'm going to be the first one up this or jump off a waterfall in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I'm going to Ginge. So it just kind of fit, I guess.
1: Okay.
2: There's probably another sophomore version of that, but I'll leave that one out make this family friendly.
1: And what is your preferred version of the, the shortened trail name? Is it Ginger? Is it? it A lot of people call me Jeebs. Yeah. Jeebs. Okay. All right. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll refer to you as Gingerballs or Jeebs, and, and I, I can't promise, but uh, you know, I I think I have a tendency to call you Balls as well.
2: Yeah, all right, I'll take that. But I okay. think Jeebs came from one of your previous guests um, on the PCT, um, Little Skittle. I think yeah. that's where Jeebs started becoming more common.
1: Okay. Yeah, it was probably more appropriate for her to call you Jeebs than uh, the
2: exactly. yes. full name.
1: Got it. Got it. It makes sense. All right. Hey, you've been on a number of times. Uh, so this is actually more for the listeners, first time listeners out there. Uh, we have a segment towards the end of the episode called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And that's where I will turn to Ginger Balls and ask him to share with us uh, some trail wisdom to make our listeners' next outdoor experience even better. So be on the lookout for that. That'll be coming again, come towards the end of the episode. Uh, but right now, uh, let's talk about gear. And you know what? We're going we're gonna to customize this. Because I know you know you're a triple crowner. You've done a lot of things out on the trails, but I know also know that the last couple of years you've spent a lot of time uh, behind a dog sled or on a dog sled and up in Alaska. And we're going to talk a lot about that. I'm looking forward to the stories. So we're gonna we're gonna customize this a little bit. The must
2: bring gear review.
1: So this is the must bring gear review sponsored by the ultralight backpacking gear company Six Moon Designs. And here's how it typically works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, we're going to change that to a a multi-day excursion, which can encompass uh, a dog sled uh, excursion. What is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand uh... for that for specific specific piece of gear, even better. So Ginger Balls, what is your your must-bring piece of gear out there in Alaska?
2: Um, well,
1: as you guys know, well, previous listeners may know, or anybody knows
2: me that I suffered some pretty severe frostbite on the PCT. So that's one of the struggles I've had up in Alaska. So, um, gloves, multiple layers of gloves, over mittens, and, uh, really good boots and, and good wool
1: socks. So you got to keep the extremities very, very warm. Your hands yeah, and n- feet.
2: Nothing else really bothers me except for my fingers and toes.
1: hmm those appendages are the most at risk for frostbite, correct? Correct. Yeah. And what are some of the temperatures you're dealing with or have dealt with up in Alaska?
2: Well, it's still pretty early in the in the winter, and this is my first winter in Alaska. So I know it's going to get dropped down negative 50, negative 40. So far I've only seen negative 30, only negative 30. But you know, being outside, whether it's working or dog mushing in negative 30. If you're not prepared, if you're not ready, um, yeah, you can get frostbite within minutes. So um, I've definitely paid attention to the layers on my feet and the layers on my fingers, my hands.
1: Right. In the, in, in the absence of a thermometer, is there a way for your body to tell just exactly how cold it is? I mean, what, what does negative 30 feel like? Um, well, my
2: beard frosts up within 15 minutes. I'm, once I get a full face of ice, I'm like, okay, it's definitely below zero. Um, but we do have thermometers and uh, we're paying attention to that. But yeah, negative 30 is the worst I've seen so far, but I'm expecting it to get a little bit worse.
1: Yeah. As we were exchanging text messages, trying to coordinate this over the last, I don't know how many months, you sent me a picture of yourself, or, or I think we were, a, we were on a video call. We were on a FaceTime call. We are on a FaceTime call. mushroom. We were out on the sled and I t- I took a screenshot because you- awesome. You had uh, you had an incredible look to you with, uh, was it a snot rocket kind of? Uh, it, it was two of them coming down. My beard was yeah. covered.
2: So I FaceTimed my daughter on that same watch because I was on a really flat part where I was comfortable to actually pull my phone out and, and call some people. And uh, she also screenshotted it and she's using that against me. So feel free to share that. It's already out there somewhere. I think I might have even posted her screenshot of me.
1: Nice. Your daughter and I, we're on the same wavelength. Tell her I give her a big big thumbs up. All right. We'll do. All right.
0: It's the
2: Hiking Pole.
1: Hey, Jeebs, I know in the past we've done uh, the hiking pole where I've kind of asked you seven questions about hiking equipment, uh, hiking-related kind of questions, to see which side of the issue you fall on. And I give you a score on a a scale of of 1 to 100 on the sanity scale just to see how crazy you really are. Um, I think... uh, I think I'm going to amend this because we've already been this been through this a, a, a couple of times. Um, I have a second set of questions that are really devoted to some of the big topics facing society today.
0: Okay, and, well, uh,
1: it's it's a fun little fun little game to play. See which see which uh, which side of these issues you fall on, and oh, boy, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll give you a score. If I were to ask your daughter to give you a score on a scale from one to hundred, with one hundred being completely sane. And one being completely insane. Where, where would you fall on that? Probably oh, a twenty. Twenty about twenty. Yeah,
2: about twenty. It'd be it'd be more toward the insane part. Yes.
1: Okay. Definitely. When I, call, 50,
2: when I called her and said I was going to Alaska to be a dog musher, she said, "Of course you are."
1: So yeah, <laughs> she was not surprised. Not at all. Okay. All right. Hey, we'll start off with uh with an easy one here. Um, question number one. Do you sleep with your socks on or off? Uh, in Alaska, I sleep with them on. That makes sense. That I mean, yeah. that that's really easy, right there. I, you're, yeah. you're, right now, you're one hundred. You're completely sane. Okay. So no yeah. reason. No no point lost.
2: You got to be ready for anything. So
1: yeah. That's right. All right. Question number two: Does pineapple belong on pizza? Never. Oh, that no no hesitation on that. Never you a firm. Uh, I sure. opinion on that I love
2: pineapple but no so that, maybe I'm still at a hundred on this poll
1: I don't know I'm taking notes here we go all right we'll okay. see what what is the problem with pineapple on pizza I don't know
2: it just doesn't belong
1: yeah you yeah. wouldn't put an orange on pizza so why would you put pineapple right with, or uh, strawberry fruit strawberry
2: can you imagine oh. putting a strawberry on pizza who did, who would do that
1: I can I cannot <laughs> That's a fair point. That's a fair point. All right. Hey, up there in Alaska, question number three: Do you roll your toilet paper over or under?
2: Always over. Only psychos go under.
1: If if you go to somebody's bathroom, if you're over at a friend's I, house or at a party somewhere, you go in the bathroom and it's rolled under. That that is a troubling sign that you may be in the house of a of a sociopath.
2: Well, I always change it if it's that way. Oh, you, you, you take a stand.
1: You, I you, do. I, if I go in a
2: bathroom and it's the wrong way, I correct it and put it over.
1: Do you tell them when you come out or you just let them discover yeah. that on their own? Well, I don't I mean, even think they
2: notice. It's probably just somebody just putting a roll of toilet paper on, not paying attention to detail. Like they don't even think about it. That's the way I look at it.
1: Right. Okay.
2: I think there's two types of people, people that put it on and don't think about it and people that are like, no, it needs to go
1: over. And and you obviously fall in the latter category. What? Why does it have to go over? It just makes sense.
2: <laughs> it makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, I bet it comes from my military background. I bet it was beaten in my head at a very young age to do it that way.
1: Yeah. Okay. You know, my dad used to tell me a story about toilet paper in the military. He was in the Marines, and he said that uh, the Marines had a a Solution: Whenever there was a supply sor- shortage, especially with toilet paper, that uh, they were allocated one square of toilet paper per day. Oh, I know! I know how to use one square toilet paper. Yeah, you, you take it and you you fold it in half one way, you fold it in half the other way, so it's now a square. And then you tear off the the corner of it, right? And you put that corner aside. Now, if you open up that that toilet that that square of toilet paper, there's a, a hole in the center Correct. of it. And you would put your finger, your middle finger, through the the center of that hole. You would wipe yourself, and then you'd wipe off your finger with the with the uh, the, the single square of toilet paper. And then you would get that little corner that you had t- torn off and set aside previous, and you would use it to clean underneath your nail. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I always 100%. thought he was he was you know blowing smoke on that one, but you 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 have now confirmed so, that. I'm not crazy enough to do that now because I have
2: plenty of toilet paper. However. In an emergency, I have that in my in my wheelhouse.
1: That's right. You know, during the, the beginning of the pandemic when you had all of the the crisis of the, the the panic about the toilet paper being gone from the stores, I told my family, Don't worry, I've got a solution for you. It's gonna be okay. Well, fortunate
2: for me, during the pandemic, I hiked four thousand miles. So I didn't have to worry about it. I was like, What pandemic? <laughs> I did half of the A T, got up to Harper's Ferry, and then I went and did the C D T. So
1: I kind of missed all that hysteria. Lucky for you. Yep. All right. Back to the poll. Question number four. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. 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 What is what is the qualifying criteria for a sandwich?
2: Well, I know you're, the argument is going to be two pieces of bread with some meat in the middle. But no, it's a hot dog. It's singular. Then... Like if you go to a restaurant, like, hey, let me see your sandwich menu. Hot dogs are not going to be listed under that. It's going to be like burgers and dogs. Like, is a hamburger a sandwich? It's a hamburger.
1: It has all the characteristics, doesn't it?
2: I, I agree. I see the argument both sides, but I would say, no, it's a hot dog, it's a hamburger, and then you have sandwiches.
1: Okay. So is a hoagie a sandwich? Yeah. Is a Philly steak, is that a sandwich?
2: Uh, I see where you're going with this, but um,
1: <laughs> I'd call a
2: Philly cheesesteak a sandwich.
1: Yeah. Okay. So wh- when does it depart from just being a sandwich to something other than a sandwich, even though it has the same ingredients? Uh, when it's two slices of bread, meat,
2: cheese, veggies, whatever, and mustard. That should be one of your questions. Mustard or mayonnaise? Only psychos eat mayonnaise. I'm very hard on that one. On your hot dog? no on anything on anything <laughs> but especially a hot dog
1: yes yeah well here here's a corollary on your hot dog is it, is it uh is it ketchup or is it mustard mustard 100% 100% onions yeah. relish i do onions no relish okay we we differ slightly on this i go ketchup and onions on my hot dogs so that's the best uh, see you're you're sliding
2: down that scale <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, hey, I'm the guy with the scale. You don't, I'm, I'm grading you. I'm the host. If you this put mayonnaise point. on your hot dog, I'd say you're a complete psycho. Oh, no, no, no. Anybody putting mayonnaise on their hot dog is just, you're on some watch list somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Question number five, Netflix or YouTube? Netflix, you
2: don't have commercials.
1: Oh, does YouTube have commercials?
2: Yeah, if you don't yeah, pay I mean, like they do. the extra yeah. fee. It's like every time you watch it, you get five minutes in. It's some political ad or some random thing. You can skip it after five seconds, but yeah, yeah Netflix because no
1: commercials. Yeah, there's some pretty wild content on YouTube though. I mean, any any kind of uh, uh, user generated content always seems you, you take a, a wrong turn sometimes.
2: Well, I, I definitely have my YouTube time, and I go down these rabbit holes, but uh-huh. I try. The commercials frustrate me too much, so yeah.
1: Okay. Best thing you've watched on Netflix, uh, recently.
2: Oh, um, the, um, uh, what is it? It's a uh, terminal list.
1: Oh, that was good.
2: Yeah. Really good. But I mean, yeah. I come from that, not that background, but you know, I, it, it speaks to me. So.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I, I find it
2: interesting. Yeah.
1: That was good. Uh, I saw the recruit recently. That was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's about an, an attorney uh, fresh out of uh, one of the academies who is, uh, he joins up with the CIA and finds himself in some pretty ridiculous situations. So pretty action packed. All right. I'll have to take a look at that. Check it out. Check it out. How about uh, content on YouTube? Any any favorite channels out there?
2: Um, Let's see. I go down rabbit holes on something I'm interested in. So it might be dog mushing, obviously the hiking stuff. I just bought a split board. So I went down rabbit hole on split board, set up how you use it. Try to save me some pain of being a noob. Um, first time I went up on the split board, I didn't do that. And I felt like I was the newest guy on the mountain. I was like, this can't be this. I, I was making it way more difficult than it is. So I immediately went home, went down that rabbit hole on split boarding. And I was like, oh, and even I think it was the CEO of um, Burton or Jones So here's the top 10 mistakes i made and I made every single one of them because it's it's counterintuitive coming from a snowboarding
1: background. Yeah. Yeah. You could become an expert in anything if you watch enough YouTube. I mean, all kinds of how to's on YouTube. Oh yeah. I try to stay away
2: from any social issues and just use it for education. Yeah.
1: Good. That's a good strategy. All right. Question number six, uh, What would be your most useful skill in the case of a zombie apocalypse?
2: i will use a weapon. Yeah. Uh, But I don't know what that's going to do against a zombie. So, (laughs) Um, um, I don't know. I can run really fast and those guys don't run fast. That would be my personal skill, not for a group, but personally, I could just run away from the situation yeah, the, long group,
1: yeah the, the group that might not be a good group skill because it's not they well, it,
2: on their own exactly it's like you know if a shark's gonna attack you, you know, there's a bunch of people in the water you just have to be the fastest swimmer so kind of similar in that that aspect
1: you don't have to be the fastest swimmer you just have to be faster than the slowest swimmer but there you go yeah that's right that's right yeah they'd be they'd be saying oh here come the zombies somebody go get go get ginger balls uh hey we're gonna we're gonna stand here and, oh, he—he's gone. He's gone. He—he is in the gone. distance. Forget. I could about. just hike
2: fast. I wouldn't have to run.
1: That's right. Okay. And question number seven. This—this this is a long question, so bear with me. Would you rather always live ten miles from when you're from where you were born, or never be able to settle down in one place for more than a year?
2: Oh, anybody knows me like never be able to settle down for more than in one place for more than a year. Definitely. Like I haven't, I rarely, yeah, I rarely go to where I was born and I've lived, I don't know, I think seven or eight States, quite a few in the past five years. So yeah, i definitely go with B.
1: That makes a lot of sense. You're always on the go. Always That's looking bad. for new opportunities. That's right. That's right. All right. Sit tight while I do some math here, we've got to put this through the John Freaky mirror algorithm. Right. Uh, I, gotta, I gotta carry the three we're going to divide by root two multiply by pi and then I've got to adjust for what happens to a beard at minus 30 in Alaska oh, yeah. and you know what you come out very sane in this poll I got you to 63.
2: Uh, okay all right
1: I'll take that yeah
2: there might be some people that argue that but I'll I'll take it
1: okay all right. Good job. Good job. Th- tell your daughter that you're you're not that you're not as crazy <laughs> as she thinks you are. She spent more time with me though, so that's true. This is just seven questions. That, exactly. That's probably not representative of, of the true score. Exactly. Okay. Hey, for the benefit of our listeners who may not have heard the prior three episodes involving you, can you give us a, a thumbnail thumbnail sketch of just your background, where you grew up, and how you got involved in the outdoors?
2: I grew up in Midland, Texas, um, desert, not a whole lot to do out there, uh, enlisted in the Navy when I was 18, did 22 years, retired as Lieutenant Commander, and then, um, did some contracting work for the government for a while, and then in 2018, hiked the Appalachian Trail and totally ruined my life for the better, as everybody likes to say, um, And then alternated hiking every summer and being a ski bum in Colorado, teaching ski and snowboard lessons. And uh, so I did the AT in 2018, PCT in 2019, CDT, half of the AT and CDT in 2020. Uh, 21, I did the Hey Duke Superior Hiking Trail and Vermont's Long Trail. And then since then, I've been uh, kind of shifted my focus to working in Alaska. And we can talk more about that. So I haven't done a lot of hiking. I did do rim to rim to rim with my daughter back in October, which was pretty cool. Um, You know, short stint, but pretty aggressive hiking. Did a lot of miles there. Um, But yeah, I haven't done a through hike since 22. No, 21.
1: Yeah. And you say change for the better. Um, I know that when you were in the Navy, that you kind of got this, this, um, I don't know if you read a book. I think it was a book that you read and kind of got the the, the whole concept of of thru hiking kind of uh, put into your brain there, and you you festered on it and thought about it. And before you, there's a number of years that went by before you were actually able to do it.
2: Yeah, actually, the story is um, I was with a friend. And we we were out hiking in um, you know like two or three days of day hikes up in um, uh, in New Hampshire. So we're up in the Whites. And one day, you know, I thought it was crazy. We we're doing 10 miles a day. And we get to the top of one of the ridges and these dirty hikers came by, just smelled awful. And we all sat down for lunch. And it's like, so how how far are you guys going? And they're like, to Maine. And I was like, no, seriously, what are you doing? They're like, well, we started in Georgia. We're going to Maine. And I'd never, I mean, I think I'd read about the Appalachian Trail, but it never really, you know, set in. And so from that moment on, I was like, I cannot believe people do this. And it just, I thought about it for probably 10 years. So I had the opportunity to do it. And I think that's the biggest thing. People just don't have the opportunity. Even if you know about it, you got to leave friends, family jobs, put your whole life on hold. And it's hard to find that time and that opportunity to do it. And I came to a point in my life. I had the opportunity. I said, well, I'm gonna go do it. So.
1: Yeah. It's a big commitment, big time commitment. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you had another question. <laughs> and so you, you say you are you were, you were changed. you say change for the better?
2: Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I think uh, since that first through hike, um, you know, I'm not chasing the dollars. I'm now chasing adventures and life experiences. And I think that's made me better. And um, you know, def- my quality of life is much better now. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm not chasing things. I'm chasing memories and adventures.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm especially tickled by your friendship with uh, other other uh, thru-hikers out there, especially Scrapbook.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah Scrap, Scrappy's a great dude. Um, he actually came to Alaska last year, met him up there. He was doing some hiking with some friends of his when he did CDT, and I just met him out for a beer there on some adventure, and so we met at some brew pub that was near where I was living at the time, and uh, so it was good to catch up with him. I'm trying to get him to come up to Alaska. He doesn't know that yet, but uh, I, it's just through text now, and I'm waiting on a phone call back. But uh, I'm trying to convince that kid to come up and work with me in Alaska.
1: Now, when we talked in, I think it was Playa del Vista in Southern California in person, you were telling me about a job opportunity that you had that you were really looking forward to as a whitewater rafting instructor, and you got turned down. I, I did. Lo and, lo and behold, they 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 talked to you, they interviewed you, they thought about it and they said, uh, yeah, you're not the right guy. And of course, you were you were disappointed with this news, as anybody might be. But, uh, you know, if not for that, we might be having a very different conversation right now.
2: You know, 100 percent. And I'll back up. You know, I don't know why you're bringing up all these hurtful memories um, of being turned down for a job. I knew I could do very well. Uh, but yeah, I just had it in my mind. Next step in life. I want to be a whitewater raft guide, eventually get to the grand Canyon and raft down there. And I'd still like to do that. Just not with the company. I'm not going to name, but um, I applied and they kind of called back. And they, they were kind of laughing like, Hey, you're way overqualified for this. And uh, you know, we, we usually hire kids right out of college or out of high school. And I was like, yeah, I get it. I just want to, you know, go through the training, get the gear, use this as stepping stone, you know, kind of like an entry-level job. Um, I mean, I'll pick up trash if I have to the first month or, you know, until you get me on a boat. And um, then uh, they sent me a text. Oh, no, they left me a voicemail and said, hey, you're – I think the exact words were, you're not the typical person we hire, which I took meaning I'm old and I couldn't hang. And I was like, all right, well, so I left and went and hiked to Hey Duke. Um, so I'll show them, I'll go do the hardest trail in America. So, and then that summer I was hiking another trail and I got the text, Hey, do you want to be a dirty dog musher in Alaska on a remote glacier? And I was like, let's go. So if I had gone on that whitewater raft adventure, yes, I wouldn't be sitting where I'm at right now.
1: Incredible. I don't know how anybody turns you down. It's just a a note for any, any, uh, adventure outfitters listening into this podcast if ginger balls ever applies for any position in your organization snap him up quick
2: well i'm glad they didn't but i'm still a little hurt by that but i'm getting over it until you just brought it up and thought about it in a long
1: time but i'm sorry to bring up the sensitive topics but that's what we do here at the podcast no worries no worries all right and speaking of the hey duke that was again that was a a favorite uh, memory sitting with you in that park and talking about your experience in the Hayduke Duke and some of the crazy stuff that went on in the Hey Duke. That was just a wild experience.
2: Yeah, it is. And I tell you, that, that's the trail that I definitely need to go back and attack again. Um, just the rawness of it, the challenges, the difficulty. Um, so I've never been so remote in my life. Um, and every day, like you can really mess up and it might take somebody longer than you want to come get you if you get injured out there
1: yeah and and listeners we are talking to a triple crowner and he just said that doing the hey duke he was in some of the the most remote places he's ever been so that kind of gives you a clue into what the hey duke is all about how does how does the hey duke differ from uh, a traditional american hiking trail
2: um all the trails that i've done i guess five um the hey duke there's no signage There's no trails. There's no campsites. There's no shelters like on the AT. Um, You're just out there. And it's, you know, Southern Utah. So it's super remote. A lot of sun. You either have a lot of water or you have no water. There's really not in between. Every day is different. You might walk 25 miles through the Escalante River in knee deep water, which is a challenge, but you have all the water you want. And then as soon as you leave that, you're not gonna you might not have water for two days, or it's gonna be water that you really don't want to drink until you have to. You can filter it through you know a, a sock and then your sawyer or whatever you use, and you're still gonna get dirt brown water. It tastes like dirt brown water.
1: Especially if it's been through your sock.
2: Well, exactly. Well, I always use clean socks for that one. I always keep oh, okay. a clean pair of socks.
1: That, that's a pro tip right there.
2: There you go always keep, or, you know, a bandana works as well. This might be a little more salty.
1: Okay. And the the moment that stands out for me was the the story you told where you, you became a tree hugger. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Um,
2: See, so on the, Hey Duke, you're walking through all these canyons and they're basically washes and you'll come to a wash and might be four feet down or it could be 20 feet, 30 feet. There's one on there. That's a hundred feet that just seems impossible when you get there, but you, there's a route that you eventually find. Um, but I came to one that was like 30, no, it was only like 12 feet, but there's all these boulders at the bottom. And I was like, well, if I jump down, i gonna break my ankle. And I'd already threw my pack down there or lowered my pack. So now I'm like, well, that was dumb. I don't have my GPS. I don't have my garment. I don't have my phone. So for about an hour and a half, I walked around trying to find a way to get down. Um, and eventually, I was like, I only see one option. There's always options. And you're just trying to find the best option, the, less, the least dangerous option. And so there's a tree probably five feet away from this cliff that went right down to the canyon. It's probably, you know, eight inches around. So I just took a leap of faith and grabbed onto it. And as I did, it bent over. and I was like, bad idea. But then it slowly came up, and I just slid down. But I had scratches all down my legs and arms and walked back and got my pack and like, all right, what's going to happen next? So, yeah.
1: You know, I've talked to probably 200 and, you know, 240, 250 people, uh, and heard all kinds of stories that has to rank in the top three, that particular moment of, of you making that leap. I can see you on the edge of the Canyon, making that leap onto that tree to get down to the bottom. I mean, what? What a moment. It just gives me gives me chills. You know, about it. The thing about
2: that is, like, in retrospect, the actual leap wasn't that far. But if things went bad where I was located, like it would have taken a heroic effort to get me out of there if I had injured myself. So that's what I was thinking. Like, if this goes wrong, if this goes right, it's no big deal. If it goes wrong, it's a huge deal. And that's kind of what the hey duke is. Every decision you make can really alter your plans. So anybody out there that's going to go do Hey Duke, be safe, choose the right routes. There's always a way out. It may take you six hours
1: to find it, but there's always a way out. Take your time. Anybody who's prepping for that extreme adventure, what would be a good resource for them to check out? Um, you
2: know, it's pretty limited. Um, there is a book by the guy that created it. I can't remember his name, but, um, that book's not the best resource. Um, uh, Skirkle has some good resources. Um, he's got a whole, uh, data sheet that you can get, but it's all on paper. And then there is a GPS track that will help you out. But I tell you what, a lot of it was just maps and compass and then GPS. And you just got to combine a lot of skill sets to navigate that trail. Cause you'll think you're on the trail and you're 20 feet off, but 300 feet above it. And if you just keep going, you're you gotta come all the way back to you find that point where you get in that canyon.
1: Yeah, there's actually a documentary called Figuring It Out on the Hayduke, and there was a moment in that documentary where they realized they had gone down the the wrong canyon and had to go back, I don't know, six, seven miles to get back no. on the course.
2: So I watched that documentary probably 20, 30 times before I did it. I'm like, I'm not gonna make any of those mistakes, and I probably made 75% of those mistakes including that last one that's fat man's misery um if anybody's watched that documentary you know what i'm talking about and i was like i know where this is i got it and it took me three hours to figure out how to get out of the canyon it was so simple once you found it but when you're looking around it doesn't make sense you're not getting a good gps signal in there so that's not going to help you and I uh, i kept going the wrong way and go climbing up and i'm like this isn't it and then once i found it i was like that was so easy but in the moment it's just not
1: Batman's misery. Love it. Yeah. That's
2: so it. if that's I do, good. if I do that trail again, I will walk up to that point. And I'll be like, Nope, it's right here. Follow me. And if I'm with someone, they're like, no, that's not it. I'm like, just trust me. You know, you go around just these bushes and then it's there. I think that's the hard part. It uh, That particular part of the trail is hidden by bushes. So it, it just doesn't make sense. And you see where people have gone up lost here and here and over here down to down a river canyon. And, you know, the problem with that river canyon is you go, it's nice, easy walking and knee deep, thigh deep water, uh, calf deep water. But then you got to come back when you realize you're lost, you're going against the current. So the deeper the water is, the more difficult it is walking against that current.
1: Well, that just goes to show that experience is the best teacher. I mean, you've been through it uh, once or twice and now you you know. Well, I, I would
2: love to lead people who've never done that if I ever do it again, I'd love to take people who've never done the Hey Duke. And I think I could, I mean, I'm still going to make mistakes, but I'm not going to make all the same mistakes I did. I'll be like, no, no, I know how to, this particular problem. I know I, I got this one.
1: Yeah. Well, Lieutenant Commander Balls, let me know when you become a Hey Duke guide and I'll sign on for that expedition. 100%. All right.
2: I think, you know, um, I did it in about seven and a half weeks, you know, I was solo. So I was pretty aggressive. I was hiking a lot every day. No, nobody's holding me back as far as, oh, I want to go to town or I need to get a package or my shoes just arrived here. We got to go. You know, that, that type of stuff slows you down a little bit. Um, but yeah, I just was just, it was just me. So I just focused on that and I had all my packages, you know, in good spots and probably only took one, maybe two zeros the whole time.
1: So, yeah. Okay. Hey, before we get to break, let's uh, take us through how you ended up from there and uh, how you went from there and ended up in Alaska as a a dog musher.
2: Yeah. So in 21, my plan was to do the uh, Hey Duke and then Pacific Northwest trail and then maybe hang out in, uh, you know, Zion or somewhere for a little bit before I went back to work and um, did the Hey Duke. And then I I had all my packages mailed for the uh, Pacific Northwest trail and then i got a text and said because i knew someone that was doing this job and they had fired somebody they need somebody else but they're like hey i know somebody and i sat on I sat on that text for about an hour you know at first i said no i have plans and an hour later i was like tell me more and i think an hour later i talked to the owner and was like hey i've never done this and uh, he said i'll train you and the owner is dallas CV, which doesn't ring a bell for most people in the lower 48, but anybody that's in a dog musher knows he's the most accomplished dog musher of all time. So I Googled him. And then when, you know, the best in the world says they'll train you, you don't pass it up. Like if Tiger Woods said, hey, I'll teach you to putt, are you going to turn that down? You're not going to turn it down. So I went in completely green, never been to Alaska, never been to a glacier, never mushed dogs. And, uh, you know, now I'm training dogs for Iditarod.
1: Yeah, if, if the best in the world says, Hey, I'll guide you on a Hey Duke trail, sign up for that.
2: Well, well I'm not gonna say I'm the best in the world uh guiding Hay Duke, but I've done it once and I, I won't make the same mistake. So I can think of a couple names, big names that uh, I would say are pretty prominent in that area of the country on leading hikes.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm gonna ask this question. I don't know the answer. Are there are there people out there that have done the Hay Duke multiple times?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't know. Um, you don't hear much about that. Uh, the Hey Duke community is very small, you know, maybe 10 to 20 do it a year. Uh, I think it's gaining in popularity. The the, um, the Netflix documentary definitely helped that out. That's how I found out about it. A, a friend texted it to me. He's like, dude, you should do this. And I looked at it, I was like, that's crazy. Um, but, you know, I sat on it for a while. and I was like, eh, let's go, you know, always up for a challenge. Um, but yeah, there are some people that, have done it multiple times i just the community is not the same as the at or pct CDT. it's it's a little different right um, but i did see i have seen people on social media that are prepping for it now and asking questions so i'm always answering them or just giving them advice like hey don't don't hurt yourself out there because uh yeah it's not the same as just a regular through hike that's marked and has shelters
1: Right? Do you see their posts on social media just in general, or are they actually asking you questions? Do you get Do you get people reaching uh, out to find out? No, they're not.
2: It's like a, I follow a Hey Duke Facebook page, or you know, something, or maybe a hashtag on Instagram, and somebody will just you know post something. So I, I that's generally how I see it. But Got if it. any of your listeners have any questions on it, I'd feel free to share any any information I have. Okay, it, it is an amazing, challenging trail.
1: Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you escape quicksand?
2: Uh, you don't. You, wait a minute! I know I have a story here.
1: There was a, 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 I don't know, a book you you read, and it said you know the the or maybe it was instructions somewhere. There's a warning about how to escape quicksand. You do it very very slowly.
2: Yeah, very slowly. But so the US uh, USGS maps in that area. have warnings that there's quicksand around here. So every time I stepped in mud and I went below my ankle, I immediately freaked out. Like I stepped in quicksand. I never saw quicksand, but it was definitely in my head. Like, oh, this is real. Like, I mean, the government's printed on their maps. So um, yeah, be careful about that. If anybody's going to hike, they might run into quicksand.
1: Yeah. My only experience with quicksand is the the episodes of the three stooges that incorporated quicksand.
2: Right. That's probably, that's all, that's all I know. Yeah.
1: yep. <laughs> and I know some of our listeners are out there going, what are the three stooges, man? Yeah, that's because you're old, Doc. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsors. We're going to come back and hear about some adventures up in Alaska uh, doing some dog mushing. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at JollyGear.com. hiker owned Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Want to make a podcast? And yeah, welcome back. We are talking to Lieutenant Commander Ben Vaughn, also known as Ginger Balls or Jeeps, and uh, we heard about some of his 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 prior adventures out on various trails. But let's let's get to really the heart of the matter for for this episode, and that is your time up in Alaska. So you you've talked to Dallas Sevi, best in the business. You've taken him up on his his offer to be trained as a dog musher. How do you get up to Alaska? How do you get up to where the, the, his, his whole uh, organization is and what happens? I mean, what, what are you expecting and what is the reality up there?
2: Well, I had no, I I didn't know what to expect. I had two bags, dug out all my winter hiking gear. So I flew back to my storage unit. I put up my hiking gear that I was going to take on the Pacific Northwest, grabbed as much cold weather gear I could, as I could did some research on even better gear for extreme conditions and um, packed it all up and flew up. And then two days later, I took a helicopter. So let me back up. So the main kennel for Dallas CV is in Talkeetna, and it's a year round tour kennel, training, and racing. And let and, me, you know, Dallas has won I Did Rod five times, his father's won three times. Dallas has come in second a handful of times, and his grandfather helped start I Did Rod. I Did Rod considered the toughest endurance race in the world. And that is not on the dogs. It's on the human. You, you could race those dogs. You could run those dogs a thousand miles. And at the finish line, they're still pulling their harnesses. Want to go more. You got to kind of tell them, Hey, no, you've done your job. They're, they're working dogs, amazing animals. Um, and I didn't know anything about any of this. I had to Google Dallas TV. I had to Google, you know, start watching YouTube. I watched Togo, uh, you know, Balto, all the movies online, eight below. And, um, so in the summertime, we take 50 of the dogs and fly them up to 5,000 feet, this remote glacier. Only way in and out is helicopter. So we take all the structures up there, we take all the dogs, we build a camp, and then tourists fly in um, all day long on helicopters and we take them on dog mushers. And so I showed up and basically I was scooping poop for, and, and putting dogs on the line for other mushers to take them out. But you know, I talked to Dallas, I said, I get that I'm being hired as that, but my goal is I want to learn how to be a dog musher. And he goes, I got you. You know, we'll train you up. And by the end of the season, end of the summer, you'll be a dog musher. And I I think I was up there for three weeks um, when they first put me on a sled, did some training runs with the other mushers, no guests. And then one day, uh, the manager was like, hey, you're running tours today. And, uh, you know, my first one was pretty cool because I came back and they're like, wow, how long have you been doing this? years and i was like you're the first most i've ever done and they're like no way i'm like yep so hid that from the guests you know in the beginning um but we do so there's five of us that live up there with 50 dogs and the guests come up to 12 guests come six times a day so we can do 72 people a day which is a heroic day like you start 6 30 in the morning and you're probably climbing to bed at midnight um but not all days are that that rough. You know, we don't always have that many guests. Sometimes we have 30 or 40, 50, but up to 72 a day. And uh super remote cell phones don't work. You have a one Garmin GPS to text down, "Hey, here's a food order for the next week or if there's an emergency or anything in that nature." But pretty much it's just a really tight knit group of five people living in the back country with 50 dogs and then, you know, when the guests come in, we take them on mushes and when the guests don't come in uh, due to weather or any other reason, um, you know, we're just up there solo all alone. It's kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. So Jeeves, a couple of follow-up questions on that. Um, sounds fascinating. Number one is um, what, if someone wants to do this, if someone wants to be a guest and do some dog mushing, what is the cost to participate in, in your operation?
2: So down at the, they do this during right now we're doing it at the kennel because we have snow and, um, and it's like $200. And in the summer, they do the exact same thing, but they do it on these bicycle cars, four-wheel bicycle components. And you're driving them, the dogs are pulling you. Uh, not as much fun in my view. You know, you're going through some mud and you might get splashed and dusty. And I mean, it's still exciting. It's just not traditional dog marching. Um, and that's like 170 maybe. But the helicopter, well, you got to pay for the helicopter. And uh, that's where most of the money goes. So it's $600. It's only an hour and 15 minutes, but I'd say 90, I know statistics don't mean anything, but majority of our guests, closer to 100%, say that's the coolest thing they've ever done. And you know, they dropped a lot of money to do it, uh, and they're getting an hour and 15 minutes. But it's so extreme and insane that most of the guests leave like, I cannot believe this is the coolest thing I ever did. Um, but the company is AK Sled Dog Tours. Um, I'd love to see some fellow tiger trash up there. It's pretty funny. I've met a lot of people up there that I've known from past lives. And they're like, what are you doing here? Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. And they show up, they go, like, hey, what are you doing? And then I take them on a dog march. So um, I've taken friends from Coronado, California. I took the first female four-star flag officer, um, took her out. um, And then just some random people that, you know, because I always try to engage with the, the guests and like, where are you from? Oh, yeah, I've lived there um and then i took my my aunt's pastor out um from from her church made that connection i'm like do you know so and so and he's like yeah how do you know her I'm like that's my aunt you know and then met my my sister's friends and they're like how do you know her i'm like that's my sister so um it's a small world once you get up in some remote environment people start flying in you find that connection so but i'd love to see hiker trash come up and visit us um we start in May, probably May 1st, and we go until about September
1: 10th. Okay. And in the winter season, $600 gets you the helicopter ride and an hour and 15-minute dog mush?
2: Yes. Yeah. So um, that's summer. That's in the summer. Oh, that's, so that's summer, okay. September. Um, you get to fly over glaciers. You see bear. You see moose, mountain goats on your way up. And then you just go into the super remote area, land, and you're just blown away by the, the scale and the beauty of it. And then there's 50 dogs and five crazy people that live there. And uh, one of the highlights of the tour, so you do the mush and then you meet dogs and then you play with puppies because we always have puppies up there. One of the highlights is they like to see how we live. And it's very similar to through hiking, except for I have a, uh, a plastic ice fishing hut. It's probably eight by eight. Um, not a whole lot in it. You know, flat board and you got a sleeping pad and a, and a sleeping bag and a bottle of whiskey and a bunch of extra layers of clothing. Cause the, the even though it's summer, you're up at 5,000 feet. Um, you're getting snowstorms, you're getting wind, you're getting rain. And probably one of the most difficult parts of it is the sunny days. Because of that reflection that comes off the glacier. We all have to wear special sunglasses. Um, the care for the dog is the most important thing. And if the dog has any pink on it every morning, we're putting uh, sunscreen on the dog. We're putting mascara under their eyes to act as eye black. Um, and up up on the glacier, they're all male dogs just because if female went heat, it caused so many problems for the tours. We couldn't handle it. So every morning, cup of coffee, you're putting sunscreen on every dog's balls, every one of them. So the first time when I get up there, I was like, what I retired from the military? My job is putting sunscreen on dog balls, but it's extremely important because that is a very sensitive area for the dogs. And that reflection coming off the sun and the glacier, um, yeah. If we don't do that, the dog's not going to be able to stay up there for very long.
1: You know, I had a, I had questions, <laughs> but I, 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 you threw me off my game right there. I, I'm not sure what to say at that this point. I told you, I always got something for you. Yeah, you know, I have to imagine that if you have 50 dogs, 50 male dogs, and five crazy guys, all well, not just situation. guys, it's.
2: it's- when I got up there, it was more females than males.
1: I apologize. Five yeah. operators, five crazy operators up there. There you go. Uh, things don't always go smoothly. Would that would that Never. be a correct assumption? Basically,
2: I look at the day as not when or if something's going to go wrong, it's when something goes wrong. And every day is different. Every tour is different. You know, different snow conditions uh, on the mush make it challenging. Uh, the dogs may not get along. Sometimes you got to deal with that. Um, personnel problems, you know, five people in a remote environment. you got to really get along. Uh, luckily, we haven't really had that. Um, we have a lot of fun on those days when we don't have much. So because we're up so high, we could be socked in by weather. And down below, it could be a perfect day or vice versa. A lot of days down below, they're socked in. The cloud letter is at 4,000 feet. And we have a bluebird day. So, we're snowboarding, we're skijoring with the dogs. We set up a volleyball court both seasons. We've done this, we're playing volleyball all day. We play a lot of Catan. and uh, you know, there might be some drinking going on at, at the same time. So,
1: great. Now, you and I have talked about type one fun, we've talked about type two fun. We've even ventured into some type three, and I think we invented type four fun. Uh, well, on one, one of our episodes, I I
2: would say that uh, living up there is definitely type two fun because we've had people by the end of the season, just like, I'm never coming back. I'm never doing this again. And they leave for a month, go back to their real life and they're posting pictures about the glacier. You know, you start seeing it on Instagram. I miss it. And then they're rehired. So a lot of people just keep coming back every year because, you know, once you go back for a winter and you're like, man, I miss that. And then you get up there. It's like, Oh Yeah. <laughs>
1: Now, as we have gone back and forth with each other trying to set this episode up, uh, you have you have relayed upon multiple occasions. Doc, I've got stories. There's been some some happenings out there. Let's uh, let's get down to it. What do you have for us?
2: So um, I left. So I was teaching ski and snowboard last winter in Colorado. I did that for a few years. And um, Dallas asked me to come back and help with Iditarod and, you know, be part of Iditarod because I talk about it with the guests, but I've never I don't have any experience. So, you know, I got to be part of that and that was really cool. And then after that ended, we had a, some time before the glacier started. So, you know, I was just running tours on the snow at the kennel. And um, I, I think one good story is, you know, the number one rule in dog mushrooms is never let go of your sled. Cause if you let go of your sled, the dogs aren't going to stop and wait on you. They're just going to keep running. And uh, one day I was in the yard. I wasn't part of the tour. I was probably picking up poop or doing maintenance or something. And I noticed The dogs ran the wrong way and were coming at me, but the guy was a kid, probably 20, and had his mom on the sled. The way we run it is we let people muster on sleds um, with a guide following and a guide behind when something goes wrong. Well, they turned the wrong way, um, and the the kid just stepped off this brake, and the dog sled started coming right at me. And so the lady's screaming, what do I do? What do I do? And I was like, stay on the sled because I need weight, right? Just to keep the dogs a little slower. Well, she bails off in the snow. So now I have a dog team coming at me with no weight on it, and they're probably running 15 miles an hour. You know, we like to train them at 9 miles an hour. All the tours are at 9 miles an hour, but they're just picking up speed, probably approaching 20. And I'd gone through the scenario in my head 100 times on how to do this. I'm like, here you go. So they come by me. I grab the – the bow and jammed on the brake and stopped right in the yard. Everybody's looking at me like, "Whoa!" I was like, "Don't ever ask me to do that again," because I'm one and done on that. Um But then after I did a rod, you know, there's a little bit of downtime, and we had to take some uh, new dogs out for their first 120 mile mush, and I'd hey, never before.
1: Before you, before you get to that, balls, I just <laughs> had my whole mind shift, my whole perspective on this change because I had pictured. Someone pays this money. They go up there. They're sitting on the sled while you're doing the, the dog mushing. They're just enjoying the ride. You're telling me that, that people are actually, you give them their own sled to do this. So down at the kennel, we do
2: up on the glacier. It's a little different. Um, there's a sled out front that I drive with two passengers, but I'm towing a sled behind me where somebody's driving that sled. So they're not controlling the dog team up on the glacier. Cause that's too dangerous. But down, down in Talkeetna, um, Like right now we're running tours and we let people go out on their own sled, but we put a snow machine out front to set the pace and a snow machine behind for when something goes wrong, both of us can run and handle the situation. And uh, I've seen the craziest non-athletic people do amazing. And I've seen some shit shows just dumping sleds, dogs running wild. Um, I haven't had a gym gym membership in a couple of years. One, because there's no gyms where I live. Um, I'm too far out in nowhere. But um, the main thing is, every day is so physical. Like you don't need a gym. I'm in some of the best shape of my life just from everything I do all day long in the in the cold. So, um, yeah. But come on, come to Talkeetna and drive your own. And we're one of the few kennels that does that.
1: That's wild Uh, for
2: for many reasons. Like most most, uh, you know, sled rides are like get on. We'll take you for a ride, which is cool. But we're like, no, no, no. Let us teach you how to drive. And then let's go. That
1: is, that's incredible. Now, how many, how many dogs per mush team typically?
2: Um, depends. So when, when you're racing, I did a raw, that's 14. Um, and that's way outside of my scope. I'm comfortable with 12, but every dog you add, um, it, you know, it's, it's not linear. It's not like, Oh, here's an extra five horsepower. It's, um, exponential. And so 12, is a stretch for me. I'm really comfortable with eight or 10 if I'm in the back country, but um 14, especially if they're race dogs, you know, there's a difference if they're tour dogs or race dogs, the race dogs are super athletes. And if you have 14 of them on there, that's a, that's a whole nother world. So uh, I'm not quite there yet, but maybe in a couple of
1: years. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned Iditarod a couple of times. Now, what are the, what are the details on the Iditarod? How, how many miles is that race and how long does it t- typically take to complete? So,
2: I'm going to go into tour mode because I talk about this every day. And a lot of what I've already said is what I tell the guests every day. So, if you come for, if any of your any of your listeners come up, they're going to be like, ah, oh, this is the same stuff we talked about on the podcast. Um, so, I did rise 1,049 miles, goes from Anchorage to Nome. Uh, anybody can pull out their, their maps and see where that goes. And, like I mentioned previously, one of the toughest endurance races in the world. Um, the winner is about nine days. And then, you know, it's like a local marathon. Not everybody goes out to win it. Most of the people are there just to finish. That's that's an accomplishment. Um, and the guy I work for, Dallas, uh, he was the youngest to ever finish at age 18. You have to be 18 to race it. He was 18 in one day. So he's going to hold on to that record for a while. Youngest to win, age 25. He's got five wins. Um, and this year, he came at or last year now because we're in January. But um, he came in second after nine and a half days of racing toughest conditions in the world came in second by less than an hour. So, um, it was a close race. We we're hoping for a six win didn't happen, but, uh, we'll see what happens uh, next
1: year. Fantastic. Any, any, um, aspiration to do the, idea to ride yourself.
2: You know, I'm kind of on the fence. Um, you, you have to do three qualifying races and the, the races total about 700 miles and you get graded on each race. So the grading's, there's only a few things you're graded on one is sportsmanship. So if you're unkind to the, the judges or, you know, anyone on the course, you're going to get a failing grade. But the main thing they grade you on is how you take care of your dogs. If you're not taking care of those dogs, you fail. And that you could come in first place and that race won't count towards a qualifier. Um, so I'm hoping to get one qualifier in this year. Um, and then I'll see what I think about that. And then we'll go from there. But Um, the the opportunity is there, but, uh, you know, I'm not quite ready for it. It's, you know, even my daughter was like, Oh, you're just on a sled and dogs are just pulling you. It is not that at all. It's, there's so much that goes into it. It's, you know, it, we'd have to do this podcast for four hours for me to talk about it, but it's super intense. And, uh, you're not on a well-marked trail. It's like being on the Hey Duke. You never know what's coming up and you got a team of dogs dragging you down the, you know, that sometimes you can't stop. And if they decide to go the wrong way, then you got to deal with that. And then you got to get them back where they're supposed to go. So there's, there's a lot to go into it.
1: Nice. Now I I cut you off. You, you, you're about to get into another story. So,
2: Um,
1: so when I went to the kennel early, you know, I left my job
2: in winter park and one condition of that, of me leaving early, I said, Hey, I want to do a long dog march, not necessarily a race, but I'd only gone, I think 10 miles before. And um, everybody laughs. You know, all the people have been there for a long time. Like, ah, nobody gets to do that this, this soon, but a musher got hurt. And so I was, I was there and Dallas asked me, he said, do you want to go on 120 mile mush with these dogs had never done this before. And uh, I was like, yeah, let's go. So me and another musher are on a frozen river in the middle of nowhere. We did the first 60 miles of Iditarod and then we came back and I'd never, I'd been on a race sled one time. And so I was like, all right, let's just go. Cause I knew if I said no, I probably wouldn't get the opportunity again. I felt like it was a test. Like, let's see what this guy really wants to do this. Um, Super successful. No dog, no dogs got injured. You know, no, nothing crazy. Um, But for me, taking that step was a big step. I think if any musher happens to listen to this, they're gonna be like, Oh yeah, whatever. 120 miles, you know, no big deal. But at the time that was a big deal. And then this year, I'm really stepping up. I'm doing a lot more training, training the race dogs for, uh, I did right in March and, uh, first 126 mile mush of the season. Um, I take off with my dogs. There's two mushers take off in front of me. I'm the last one to go take off. And as soon as we take off my dog, we're in a parking lot, you know, it's got snow on it, but you can't set your brakes. You can't, there's snow hooks that you set down you can't get any, you can't get into the snow because it's a paved parking lot with, I don't know, an inch of snow on it. There's been plowed. And uh, my dogs take off, take a hard ride around a truck instead of going down the trail they're supposed to and slam me into the truck. I bounced off and now I'm on my, so I hit it with my right side, fall down on my left side, my sled's on its side and they're dragging me. And all I can think of is don't let go, don't let go and fix this. And uh, there's some old veteran i did rod mushers in the parking lot because that's this place is where they all train and all i can hear they're drinking beer <clears throat> and all I can hear is hey buddy you okay and i'm being drugged through this parking lot and somehow right before the trail i righted it and rode off into the sunset um, dropped my glove so immediately my hand starts freezing so i dig digging my bag for my extra but uh, the next morning i definitely felt it on my left side from hitting the truck and my, uh, or, or my right side from in the truck and my left side from being drugged. But like I said, you don't let go. Cause you let go those dogs. Are, are they will go 10 miles. They'll go. Um, yeah, they're not going to stop because all those dogs want to do is run.
1: Yeah. You pulled it off. I mean, you, 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 got it. You got the ship righted right at the, uh, the last moment. Like you, you planned it that way.
2: It wasn't pretty. And my ego was more bruised than my body because I was in front of two veterans that weren't part of our group, but you know, they're just sitting there drinking beer and just like, Oh, look at this guy. So, yeah.
1: Once you got the once you got the sled righted and and hit the trail, did you give a casual uh, wave over your shoulder? No,
2: I I was holding on tight (laughs) with two hands. Like nothing else can go (laughs) wrong after this and nothing else went wrong the rest of the month. But I started out on a, on a very bad foot, but it happens.
1: So that's incredible. Now is, is it, I, I mean, I'm, I'm gathering that your purpose up there is twofold, at least twofold. One, one is you're providing uh, sled, sledding opportunities for tourists or for, right. for guests, and the other is you're training dogs for, uh, for for mushing and for possibly the Iditarod.
2: Correct. So um, we're a full service kennel. So every day we have tours that come in, and we take them on dog mushes, and every day we're training dogs. So that's the challenge is come up with a plan of how you get the tours done to make money. Cause you know, feeding 110 dogs is extremely expensive um, how you do tours and then how you fit training in as well. So if you do a 50 mile mush, that's seven and a half hours with an hour planning before it and probably 30 minutes to an hour after it. So it's a full day in addition to a full day of tours. So the days can go long. Um, but right now we've kind of got it where we're managing both and the days aren't going too long. But some days it's just like, right? you guys do tours first and then you guys go – guys and girls um, go out and mush. So um, but we've got a nice tight-knit team at the kennel and uh, we're crushing it, so –
1: and and I, you said earlier that you're graded highest on some of these qualifying races for how well you you take care of the dogs, and I know there's an element, a, a large element of dog care in your role, because you've had we we we've kind of uh, had crossed wires or have been able to connect un, been unable to connect because you've had to take care of a, a dog that was suffering in some way or was sick in some way. What uh, tell us a little bit about yeah. that?
2: Yeah, um, you know, you know, flip stomach. It's not common, but it's happened. Um, so. We have protocols in place that when you feed, most of the dogs eat immediately. Well, actually, all the dogs eat immediately. And if they don't, all right, they're on the watch list. And then you feed them dinner and they don't eat again, okay, might have a problem. And then by that next morning's meal, if they're not eating and, they're, and if they're not pooping, there's either a blockage or a flipped stomach. And we've had a couple of those. And uh, immediately rush them to the vet, emergency surgery, and those dogs recover Super fast. It's uh, not any negligence on anybody's part. It's just, you know, everybody's had that golden retriever. It's a sock and, you know, that, that happens. These dogs are much sturdier than a golden retriever or any house vet, but uh, you know, we occasionally get those problems and uh, we're always
1: watching that. Yeah. And there's no, there's no vet clinic up on the glacier. I mean, this taking, taking a dog to get care, it's a, it's a, an involved uh, effort.
2: So last summer I did two trips down with a dog in my lap on a helicopter, got down to my truck, put him in my truck, rushed him to the vet. I'm like, Hey, you know, here we go. This is, this is what I've seen. And then it's like, and one of the the first one I did, the vet comes out immediately. They did an x-ray and they're like, well, there's a, there's a rock blocking them. We're gonna have to come up. I'm like, well, that's impossible. I live on a glacier. That's not a rock. It's something else. And the vet's like, no, that's a rock. But what had happened is the dog had eaten a rock during the summer early like in the spring and it just took months for it to block everything up Um, so yeah, I'm learning a lot about dog care and that's kind of the focus of not just our kennel but also Iditarod and any dog mushing um, is the dog care and we have had guests come in you know oh this is cruel but I think after they do our tour for an hour or two they see the bond that all the mushers have with the dogs all the dog care we do. And they also see that these dogs only want three things in life. They want to run. They want our love and affection and they want to eat. If you give them, give them those three things, they're the best dogs in the world.
1: And what is the average age of the, the dogs that you mush with? And is there a retirement age?
2: Yeah. So we have dogs at the kennel ranging from one week to 14 years. Um, so there, there is a, process the puppies they just get played with all the guests come in get to hold puppies get pictures and that's the socialization of the of the dog um and then the yearlings we run them we train them like 20 miles a day every other day and they're wild they're crazy they don't know what they're doing um and then you have the two-year-olds that may do some races this year like 100 miles 200 miles maybe even 300 if they're you know advanced or if they're more mature And then the race dogs are anywhere from four to about eight years old. That's the race team. So the yard is kind of divided up in in those groups. Um, And then you have the tour dogs. The tour dogs are generally either dogs that aren't going to make the race team, but they still want to run, or they're older dogs that have retired, not not retired, but moved off the race team, but they still want to run and can provide like good leadership skills for all the other dogs. And then around nine or 10, the dogs start losing that enthusiasm to run and they become house dogs. You know? So at the kennel you walk when the the guests walk in, there's 10 dogs all over the couch, just retired. You let them out when they want to go. So it's more their house than anyone else's house. And the guests love it because all the dogs are like retired champions and they're just laying around, getting pet, living their best life. And because the Alaskan Husky is a, a mutt breed, they, they typically live like 16 to 20 years. So half their life, they're mushing and half their life. They're just, you know, um, three things usually happen when a dog retires. They either go into the house and become house dogs or someone like me will adopt them. So all the mushers have dogs, except for myself. I, I don't yet cause I don't know where I'm going. I don't want to take on that responsibility or there's a foundation that places the dogs with the right person. Um, I like to say if you have an office job in New York city and working 16 hours a day an Alaskan husky is not for you, but for all the people I see hiking with their couch dog, that idea you take Alaskan Husky, they would crush any trail out there. Definitely.
1: Even the Hey Duke.
2: Uh, yeah. But you'd have to lower them down a lot. So that'd be, you'd have to have some thicker, you know, line to lower them down. But, um, but yeah, like, AT PCT, you see a lot of people dogs. <laughs> a lot of times dogs that shouldn't be out there, but the Alaskan Husky would make the perfect hiking companion. Except for when it gets hot. Right. Right.
1: All right. Hey, before we get to the ending segments of the episode, do you have a, another another story uh in reserve? Another so- something amazing that's happened out there or unbelievable.
2: Um, well, I'd like to do a PSA real quick. If anybody listening, anybody's listened this long me talk about this and still interested we are looking for a couple people um to hire so contact me on instagram at hiking underscore ginger underscore b and i think through hikers would find this lifestyle right up their alley but uh you know we're looking for some people you got to work hard um long hours long work but it's it's type two fun like one of the coolest things you'll ever do in your life
1: Man, you went from pooper scooper to director of HR. I mean, that's that's a meteoric rise right there.
2: Yeah. Well, hey, we need people. So I'm trying to create that the best team we can have up there.
1: Hey, you know who I'm talking to tomorrow morning? Who's that? I'm talking to Garmeyer. I'll let him know. Are you really? There's, there's an opening. Yeah.
2: All right. Tell him to come on up. <laughs> is he, he's not afraid of hard work.
1: I don't think so. I, that guy's up for anything. Sounds good. All right. Hey, uh, Balls, you know where we are? Um. Yeah, hang on. No, <laughs> tell me. The Pro Tip Insight of the Week. We're at that time of the episode where you get to share some trail wisdom or maybe some mushing wisdom with, uh, with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better.
2: All right. I think I'm going to go with survival recommendations um, in extreme environments because Alaska – is extreme and this will pertain to anybody going through a hike as well um be ready for the weather to change and have the right gear you know in my truck in alaska i have survival gear, gear that i just travel with because i made a mistake i came down to the lower 48 a couple months ago and i flew back to alaska i didn't have layers on i had my tennis shoes my hiking shoes on And as soon as i stepped out of the airport i was like oh i made a mistake and then if my truck breaks down on the way home, that's a problem. So I think always have that in mind. Like you can't keep water in your truck because it's going to freeze solid, but you can keep fire starter, extra fuel, food, and, and layers of clothing. Like always be ready for the worst to happen because you never know what that weather's going to do.
1: Well said, sir. Well said. And, um, you know, when we talked about type four fun in your previous episode, I think that referred to the Barkley marathons Any yeah. Any change in perspective on that? Uh, is this maybe a future yeah. challenge for you?
2: So I'm not running up in Alaska. Obviously, it's the snow's too deep, and you know I'm not going to run. I did go on a six mile run yesterday, though, um, and still got some fitness, so I'm feeling good about that. But no, I have no desire to do the Barkley. Zero. All
1: right, just checking in. Just just want to see. Uh,
2: you'll be the first to know if I ever go down that
1: route. Fantastic. All right. So there you have it. That's it. This episode is just about in the books. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with ginger balls. Want to thank you for joining us this week, Ben, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media? Where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Maybe see some, some of those awesome pictures of the snot running down, the frozen snot running down your beard.
2: Yeah. um, Instagram is the best one at hiking underscore ginger underscore B. But yeah, if anybody has questions on, Hey Duke, or if you need a job up in Alaska, we're looking for like one or two people. So um, reach out. Let's talk.
1: Okay. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. And yes, I'm still on TikTok, even though you said "Oh my goodness, 16-year-old girls. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakymirror at gmail.com. The Adventure Media Recommendation. And Ginger Balls. Before? We get going here. I'm also looking to you to share a recommendation for a book, a movie, documentary, some kind of adventure media to keep our listeners connected to the outdoors. We call this our adventure media recommendation. Any anything, any recommendations you have for us?
2: Well, going back to YouTube, um, go down that dog mushing I did a rod rabbit hole, see what it's about. Um, I think hikers would definitely appreciate that. And um, you know, a lot of adventure out there um dog mushing.
1: Okay, I'll have to check that out. See what it's all about. See what you've been going through, the last year and a half.
2: What have we not asked you?
1: And before we wrap things up, just one more segment called "What Have I Not Asked You That You're Dying to Tell Us About?" What do we miss tonight?
2: Um, what am I doing
1: next? What
2: are you doing next, Ben? I don't know, but it's going to be something awesome. I have a, you know, just letting life take me where it goes, and uh, you know, once opportunity. Arises. I'm going to jump on it and I'll be doing something completely different than dog mushing.
1: Generally on the, what have we not asked you segment uh, people, you know, that, that's something they, they, they want to tell us about. So when, when you, you say you didn't ask me what's next and I asked you what's next and you say, well, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a change in pace for us. That's nice. All
2: right. Well, there you go. I'm, I'm always giving you the unexpected. That's right. Unique, unique, unique.
1: All right. hey that is a wrap from the John Freaky Mere studio any shout outs to friends and family Ben
2: yeah scrapbook uh, little skittle um you know all the other hikers uh, that I follow that I haven't met yet you know Jeff Garmaier um all those guys do you have a favorite dog no so you're not supposed to have a favorite dog however there's a couple that once they reach retirement age I'm definitely gonna adopt them so definitely. shout out to Ace ace nice yeah ace. i'll send you a picture you can post uh before this uh podcast comes with me and ace. perfect perfect yeah. let's take
1: a look at ace all right hey thank you for tuning in always remember the trail is the trail doesn't care if you want to go downhill doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite it doesn't even care if you spent the morning spreading sunscreen on the balls of your mush team the trail <laughs> is the trail embrace the suck <laughs>